welcome to the next GenCast. My name's Nish Manik. I'm a GP registrar in Cambridge and somehow it's 2021. Happy New Year. So a new year means a fresh start. And we're kicking off the podcast this year with someone who I really think is a breath of fresh air. This podcast is a chat really with my friend and colleague Imogen Staveley. Imogen's a relatively new GP, so she only qualified about six years ago. But what she's achieved in that time, I think, is pretty remarkable. As well as being a GP, she's also a GP appraiser. She's deputy chair of Warwickshire North CCG, and she's a clinical lead in the transforming primary care team of the Healthy London Partnership. She also recently graduated from Warwick Business School with an MBA, for which she got a distinction. And before that, she completed a Darcy Fellowship at UCL Partners. Now, at next-gen events, lots of people often ask, you know, how do I find leadership opportunities at a really early stage in my career? And, you know, what is a good mentor and how am I meant to find one? And people say things like, you know, these senior leaders that come to talk to us, they're so inspiring, but I don't have the titles and the networks and the experience that they have. So how am I meant to start? So this podcast is really for people who've been asking those questions and who'd like some answers. And I think Imogen's a great person to give them because I've always really admired her drive and the way she pushes herself out of her comfort zone and the way that she's really willing to share her advice and her experiences with other people coming up behind her. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here's Imogen Stavely. So Imogen, welcome to the Next Gen cast and thank you so much for doing this. It feels like we just sort of squeezed this in in the nick of time because you are imminently due with your second child, I believe. You're absolutely right, Nish, and um, I'm, but I'm really glad to be on this um, and uh, I've worked with you for some time now and anything I can do to help. If you, if you need to go in the middle of this conversation, I feel like you probably have the best excuse of anyone that we've had on the podcast, so I'll forgive you. So I've just spent some time reading your roles and all the amazing things that you've done, which reminded me why I think I admire you so much and why we've become friends. We, I mean, we met a few years ago, I think, when I applied for a mentor with the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management. And I don't know if you remember, but I really remember our first meeting. I was a GP trainee in London and we met in a coffee shop and you were just, you were, you were so helpful and had so much wisdom to share, which I loved about you. But that sort of mentoring relationship quite quickly evolved into a friendship and over the years, I found chats with you really helpful because you're a friend, but you're that kind of friend that's always nudging me to think about my next step and encouraging me to grow. So thank you for that. Maybe let's just start with people who don't know you very well. Can you maybe tell us who's the real Imogen? Thanks, Nish. Well, I'm a mum. Um, I've got a two-year-old and as you mentioned, I'm about to have a second child. I work three and a half days a week, roughly. Uh, although during COVID that changed somewhat rather unexpectedly as with a lot of people I imagine um, and at times it was a seven day a week job which took quite some juggling but yeah I balance being a mum with being a clinical lead um, and doing clinical work as well so I see patients two sessions a week as a GP but do clinical leadership roles the rest of the time and I would say I'm a, a real portfolio GP 
I have a range of clinical leadership roles um, and I'm also a GP appraiser. And I find that rather than thinking of them all as separate roles, actually I work for one NHS and the learning that comes from each role really benefits the other roles. So um, I think it's brilliant being a, a clinician and a clinical lead at the same time because you really see what's happening on the ground um, and can put what you sort of want to improve into practice with that knowledge. Thank you. I'll definitely want to ask you about that balance, actually. But before we go there, let's just go back to the start, where your leadership journey really started. Can you take me back to where you think it all began? So I was um, an NIHR Clark Fellow, which is a sort of quality improvement fellowship that I did as an ST3 GP um, at the Chelsea Westminster Hospital. And that involved me kind of learning about some of the basic techniques of quality improvement. So I'd say that's probably where it all began. And then what, what did you go on to do next? So that gave me a real taste for things. And it seemed sort of obvious for me to add on a year of GP training and do the Darcy Fellowship because I wanted to learn more. And that involved more learning about clinical leadership and, again, working with different cohorts of clinicians for a year and doing a really tangible project. Uh, I worked for UCL Partners, the Academic Health Science Network, on improving um, the sort of stroke rate in the Camden area. And I found kind of that practical application and sort of learning about change management and the complexity in the real life, sort of rather than just the theory, like putting it really into practice, what that meant. And so that, that was next. And then I, you know, I realised that I wanted to do this and that it was sort of where my strengths, I guess, lay. And so kind of explored further by using that year also to have lots of conversations with people that were ahead of me in clinical leadership roles and taking sort of inspiration from them and learning from them. And that actually led me to a job at Outcomes-Based Healthcare, which was a startup company. And that made me learn all about value-based commissioning and how you could commission differently for improving patient outcomes. That was brilliant and sort of opened my eyes. Also working in a slightly more private sector role, kind of how that was a bit different to the NHS. But it very much helped feed into future NHS roles, um, including being cancer clinical lead for Camden CCG for about a couple of years and then leading on to my clinical lead role in Warwickshire North and, and then following that deputy chair of Warwickshire North Clinical Commissioning Group and also um, being clinical lead for the transforming primary care team of the Healthy London Partnership in Workforce. So you're so, you, you're so busy, I don't know what you're not doing. How many years post-CCT are you, remind me? I qualified in 2014, so six years. Oh my um, word, and the number of things that you've done in that time plus had a, a child <laughs> one of the things that meant um that it had seemed I guess like there's lots of roles is I moved geographically halfway through that time so moved from London to Warwickshire um because of my husband's role actually in um his work and I suppose that led me to have to change what I did um and I think that was both you know like quite stressful at the time but also a really amazing opportunity I found working in two different CCGs really really incredible for learning about both similarities and differences geographically and what that means so I would say it's been you know actually having to move geographically has been a really good learning curve as well um, and also taught me that your career doesn't need to have to follow a specific path you know you can be what seems like slightly derailed at a time and actually lead it to opportunities. It's nice to hear you say that actually because life does get in the way of our careers of our leadership journeys and it's useful to hear that 
you felt that was actually an opportunity, a strength for you. I just want to go back to some of the things that you mentioned. So um, say the Darcy Fellowship, that was an additional year of training. For people listening who might be wondering about how it feels to take a year out to sidestep when everyone else is on that training conveyor belt, were you worried at all about slowing down your career progression? I, I suppose I thought about it, but felt it was such an amazing opportunity and actually, um, you know, we're going to be working a lot longer than some of the people at the end of their careers are now, potentially. So, you know, we might be working 68 or beyond. And so I think, you know, if you put things in context like that, that actually we've got a lot of time. And the more you get experience in things, as long as you then apply it appropriately in kind of what you do next and can sort of tell a story of why you've done things, I think actually it just adds to the sort of depths of your experience and knowledge and so no I think for me the the benefits of doing the Darcy just definitely in my head outweighed any risks. And there was a whole host of things that you've sidestepped and done were they planned or did opportunities just come your way and you took them how did you navigate that career path to then be the portfolio GP that you are today? So I think I touched on earlier conversations. I think speaking to people is so, so key and trying to explain kind of what your values are and what you really care about um, to people that you work with so that they maybe think of you when a role comes up. I think that it's, that's been my key thing. So I don't think anything in this life is kind of particularly random. I think it is to do with, um, you showing what your interests are and as I say your values I think it's really important and sort of being able to tell a story in in where where you're going and and why and I also think at times if even if there isn't a particular reason like if you think oh something's gonna be a bit of a sideways step like my work for outcomes-based healthcare was a bit to some people might have seen a bit random to step into a sort of startup private sector role but I could see what it was going to teach me and what I was going to learn from it and bring that back to the NHS so I think it's about being clear in your head why you're doing something. I also did an MBA and it wasn't a medical one and a few people said to me at the time why aren't you doing a specialist medical one but I my explanation for that was one of the things I felt I was weakest in was things like finance and accounting and those kind of things. And, and I felt like by doing a standard one with peers that were accountants and lawyers and everything like that, that that would actually give me a stronger footing in that. And that sometimes you can not know what you don't know. And I hoped that the doing a standard MBA would uncover my unknown unknowns um, and not keep me in the safe bubble of the medical world. It's just being able to explain why you're doing something that doesn't seem to fit maybe what other people would think you should be doing and and just being able to explain to them because nobody else completely understands the experiences that you are having or that you are choosing so it's having confidence to stick with them and and be able to explain them Mm. and even if maybe you can't see exactly how they're going to fit together in a future picture I remember when you were doing the MBA and it was I was really envious of the things you were telling me that you were learning about and you did that part-time, didn't you? Yeah, so I did it. Um, it was basically Fridays and Saturdays every other week for two years. And then also a project for sort of six months of that time as well. Um, and again, I stepped out of the normal sphere and did my project at Gail's Bakery um, in their marketing department for six months. Actually, it was so incredible because they had a head office and lots of bakeries, which is just like having a CCG and lots of GP surgeries. 
but they don't have the sort of long-standing nature of the NHS or the political links, as it were. So it was a sort of much younger company with less bureaucracy. Um, and the learning I got from that was really, really incredible. And it actually made me value the NHS even more and be sure I didn't ever want to leave it. And actually, one of the things it's led to, other than the experience of doing the MBA itself, was Warwick Business School uh, matched me with a mentor following it, which I've had for two years, uh, probably longer now, because he's very kindly covered me over my last maternity leave as well. And he has just been a fantastic support. He's not a clinician, um, but he has worked in healthcare. He has just been a really good support. And had you had coaching or mentoring before him? So I've had coaching or mentoring of some sort since I did my Darcy Fellowship. So basically since I've been qualified, I found that really, really valuable. I think sometimes people worry it's just time talking about yourself or a waste of time or they don't quite understand what it brings. But I just find it helps clarify my thoughts. It helps um, me plan next steps. And I've used it from everything from making a really difficult career choice to managing a difficult person that I've had to work with. So it can be something really quite small, even discussing one conversation you've had for, for a whole hour, but that helps you then deal with future difficult conversations. So it's really, really valuable. The question I often get asked is, how do you find a mentor? Also, even if you could find them, how did you know they were the right person to be your mentor? That's a really good question. I think I'm not perfect at it. So I'd say to people, it's a bit trial and error. I think it has to be mutually the right um, relationship. It's really two way. And I think I'm quite an unusual clinician. So for some people, they get me and think, oh my goodness, what do I do with her? So it has to be somebody ready to challenge you enough um, and get that level right. And I think having that conversation about level of challenge that you want is really important because for me, I need somebody that does stretch me and challenge me uh you know I've got friends that can be nice to me if I've had an upsetting day I want somebody that helps me think differently so I think it's knowing what you want that person for and the level of challenge you want from that person is really important um as to kind of how I found them so in a variety of ways and I'd say you have to be creative and look at where sort of funding is at the time so there was everything from like the London Deanery, FMLM then there's been various funding sources that the NHS NHS England sort of puts out at different points and I've seen communications in sort of things like CCG emails or, or things like that so it's just I think it's keeping your eye open but then I would say there's the difference between kind of coaching and mentoring so there's this sort of somebody that you see maybe regularly um, either as a coach or a mentor but also you can have I guess almost calling them sponsors so people in career positions ahead of you that you might just have one or two conversations with along the way and again I think sometimes that's about having the confidence to approach someone and say could we possibly in the old days have a coffee in the new days probably have a zoom call and uh, the reason I want to speak you know be really clear about why you want to speak to them so that they know what the ask is I think I would recommend that. I think none of us mind at all giving time up to help people if we know why and how we can help because also people want to feel useful. So if they're not quite sure what the ask is, they're a bit more nervous about speaking to you. That's really helped me. I, for example, I approached a woman after seeing her on a panel discussion and we chatted and then about six months later, she sent me a job advert and the job advert was for a clinician who also did ccg work and was doing an mba and actually i did go for that job and i did actually get offered it but this is one of the decisions where you go this isn't actually right for me i I just the location i I didn't think was going to work and 
I wasn't convinced their MBA that they were offering was one that matched with what I needed. But it then gave me the inspiration to go and basically create that job myself. So that was when I got the Camden CTG job. So I do really think it can lead, like one conversation can lead to really tangible, big things in your life. I think I think your advice there about having a clear ask is actually really good. I'm already thinking of people I've approached and probably not done that with and how that's probably not a great use of their time. But something I've always actually admired about you, Imogen, is you don't really hold back. You just have a lovely manner about you, but you ask and you're you're polite but confident. It doesn't sound like it, but do you ever have doubts or think, Oh, I can't I can't ask that person, they're too important? In the last year in particular, where I know people have been really, really busy with COVID, for example, it's made me like, oh, is my request, you know, is a career type request important enough when everyone's really up against it? And or, or somebody suggests I speak to someone who I think, oh, they're really important. And, you know, would they want to speak to me or, or something like that? But I think it's about thinking, well, certainly I really enjoy mentoring people. So actually, it's sometimes quite an energizing thing for people. And actually, if you're in the middle of dealing with some really gritty, tricky issues, having 40 minutes or an hour with somebody that's enthusiastic and wants to help and wants to further their career, but in a useful way, I think many people actually quite enjoy that time. So I suppose it's trying to balance your nervousness or your concerns about bothering people with, well, what, why am I doing this? You know, I'm doing it because I want to make a bigger impact in the NHS. I want to help trying to rationalize in your mind, kind of why are you doing it and the value that this conversation could bring. And I think remembering what value previous conversations have brought, therefore that it's worth doing um, helps me sometimes. And and you're right. It's an, I mean, you're only asking, aren't you? So if they can't do it, they'll say no. It's not like you're demanding and you have any authority over them. So I will always remind myself of that, that, well, if they haven't got time, they're perfectly entitled to say no, and they will. So, yeah, and, and they, they have. have. Yeah, yeah, they have. Yeah. We'll say no. So it's not like everyone says yes. And it doesn't, I don't take that personally. You know, I know that everyone's time is precious and mm. they have people, people have different skills to bring. So they might not feel they've got that much to add or at that time or whatever. So, yeah, don't get put off by that, I think, is the other thing. And I was just thinking on the subject of saying no. I mean, you just sound incredibly successful and like you've had this really smooth journey jumping from one job opportunity to the other and creating this amazing portfolio now. Have you ever gone for something and not got it? Yes. I'm saying that enthusiastically because. <laughs> I want to be very honest that, yes, I sometimes reach for things that are beyond my grasp at that time, but I try and get the biggest learning out of each experience and be as wise about what you do pick to put your energies into. It might be too much to ask, but could you share an example of that? I would show you like a a kind of positive negative example, as it were, was I went for a role in NHS England earlier in the year. Um, but why it was really positive was I learned about doing an application to the national team. I um, had an interview that was challenging. I then straight away wrote down all the questions so that if I was to be in that situation again, I'd remember them and be able to hopefully get better at them. But then what was lovely was, although I didn't get offered the role, I was then offered some mentorship afterwards because they said, although there was somebody kind of more experienced and you know more suited to the role at that time, we see your potential and we'd like to help. So I think that's why I would say that sometimes you do need to go for things that might be slightly out of reach at one time because it will help you get to the next stage. And that person that's done the mentoring has been really, really helpful to me. And 
introduced me to other people and it's kind of widened my I guess horizons and made me think differently about the NHS but it's also helped in my current roles of thinking as we in Warwickshire move towards becoming an integrated care system how we might want to shape that and, and things like that so it, it's by doing yeah one interview um it's actually helped me think about my current role and how to do it better it's also helped me think about how not just to get a role but how to then be really excellent in that role so and what kind of skills I might need to start developing now to be excellent in a future role. So I would say, yeah, things haven't always been smooth. I also ran a startup for a really short time called pregnapouch.com. And um, I remember that. It shows you that the ideas can be good, but that the actual, you know, running a business is a really harsh reality. And it was an amazing thing to be part of. But at the end of the day, it hasn't worked out. That's partly becoming a mum. I had to think differently, had to start drawing up boundaries. Um, I really clearly wanted to do what roles I do really well um, and just couldn't spread myself too thinly. It therefore was around, I guess, pruning back what my portfolio was to, to be the best that I can be. So let's talk about being a mum then, because I'm a new mum as well. And I think I probably would have found it really useful to hear from other mums, so maybe other people will. So... Henry's too, isn't he? Yeah. Tell me about how, you know, how has that impacted your thinking, your work pattern, your ambitions? I think it was a, a obviously such a big change and you don't really know how you're going to feel until it happens. And I love being a mum and I'm really glad I took a full year of maternity leave with Henry and was able to kind of be there for some really key moments in that first year. But I'm also glad I, I did start doing some keeping in touch work during that year. So um, I found it really valuable to get a little bit of childcare a week from when he was about six months, so um, roughly three hours a week, just to be able to put in some calls with people, read some interesting stuff like the long-term plan came out while I was on maternity leave. Just slightly keep my ear, I guess, to the ground of what's happening. I think that meant I was a better mum as well because I needed to use my brain a little bit, but it meant I was there for the majority of the time and um, also let me kind of be the kind of mum I wanted to be I wanted to breastfeed and be around and that side of things so that was great getting back into work I also found it quite helpful having a portfolio of roles because I sort of started back in one before the other before the other so it, it was less of a kind of dramatic start back and I think that was that was helpful I still found it really hard going back because suddenly I was missing bedtimes like my role in London I have to commute and um, I was missing a lot of time and it was sort of quite a transition and I'd say sort of not beating yourself up for finding that a bit hard is really important at the beginning but at the same time not feeling guilty for being away kind of get on with what you're doing and do the job you, the best you can do it because if you're going to be away you may as well do the job really really well I think it was around changing my relationship with my husband, you know, kind of being more dependent on him. We had to balance the childcare between us and things like that. So I think having loads of conversations and keep having conversations because you don't, you think you've got to have all the conversations before you go back. But what you don't realise is it's when you go back that you realise what it's going to really be like and having to kind of tweak things and be flexible between you both. But also getting the right childcare solution that you feel happy with. And then it is around... I, I try and set myself three goals per job 
um, every six months or so. I set one that's really achievable, one that's moderately achievable, and one that's really going to be a challenge. It might take a year or two or even more. And revisiting those every six months is really helpful. Usually you've achieved the easy one, which then gives you a bit of a feeling of progression. The middle one, you hope you've progressed quite far along. And then the hard one, you just have to see if that's still realistic and how that's going to go. But I find doing that kind of in the context of what I'm doing at home and how things are is really important and reevaluating things. So I think it's about yeah keeping keeping looking at it again and again, not feeling like you've made one plan and you have to stick with that if it's not making you happy. So I resigned from my marking of Cardiff University um, dermatology work. I guess six months or so after I went back, I just realised that no longer was kind of being very academic in the dermatology world, very important to me. I said, why is this relevant anymore? But right now it's not not really key to what I'm doing and it doesn't fit with my story particularly. I think it's really it's really nice that you're honest about the things that you've said no to because we can spread ourselves too thin. I wondered if when you when you went on maternity leave, was there ever a niggling sense of, I guess, fear of missing out? Because you were doing all these amazing roles, you're so high flying and then it all stops maybe it's a bit of a it's a bit of a tough question but whether it's kids or something else sometimes we do take these sideways steps sometimes planned sometimes not and people seem to worry about that so I'm curious to know someone as driven as yourself did you find that difficult yeah I really I really did I did really feel that pressure of FOMO as it were fear of missing out I was concerned that I would become out of date, that I wouldn't have the relationships anymore, that people would forget who I was, that my projects would stall that I was working on. And it's it's really interesting going on a second maternity leave to kind of see how I feel now. The truth is that there was a mixture of those things that happened last time. It, it is, It does have a bit of an impact and getting back into things, you know, was certain things was a little bit of a challenge however I would also say it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be so people don't forget who you are they still remember the kind of um person you are that what you can bring they still seek you out once you're back but you do just have to make a little bit of an effort to make sure people know you're back and I think you know there were certain projects that sadly did stall however I would say a lot of really good stuff happened too and coming back there was loads of opportunities so it it wasn't the dead end I worried it would be and certainly now I've been back at work a year and a bit and I got promoted in that time to deputy chair of the clinical commissioning group I feel really proud of how much I've given and I feel like if I'd known how much I could achieve with a child when I went back to work um, that would have given me a lot of confidence. And I, so I think it's about valuing what you will bring when you're back rather than thinking about what you're missing out on mm. because you will miss out on a few things, but you will bring an awful lot. And I think, I think I've seen somewhere, I don't know where the quotes, who so don't quote me on it, but that I think mums that come back to work are, are often the most efficient workers and incredibly productive because they've bec- had to become so to be mums. So I think my colleagues this time have been incredibly supportive going off because they know I'll definitely be back. I've said how I'm going to keep in touch. I've been really clear about it this time in a way maybe I wasn't so much the first time. You know, I will not be checking my email all the time if you really need me, WhatsApp me, that that sort of thing. And um, But also having boundaries for yourself. So I've left quite a few social media groups. 
but told people I am because I don't want to be constantly feeling like I have to respond or have to be part of things. We've got a lot of time in our careers, as I said earlier, and I think I've spoken to so many people who are parents of many children, even three or more, um, and have incredible careers. So I don't think it needs to derail you. It just might make things a bit different for a while. Now that you're back, did you ever feel a bit second rate being part time and having presumably you had clearer boundaries once you became a mum? How did you find that? So I think that is where general practice is amazing because I do two clinical sessions. I I don't think they necessarily think I am part time because I I I guess I'm part time to anyone that would look at my day. You know, I do three and a half days, but I do do things. I catch up at different points. So. I, my husband works six days a week. So I sometimes will be that sad person doing emails on a Saturday or something like that, because what it will mean is on a Friday, I'm really off and I'm with my son and I'm a hundred percent having a great day with him. But then I might on a Saturday when he's napping, check some emails. So no, I haven't, I haven't felt worried about being part-time or being seen as not doing as much. I think my only concern is being clinical. I do two sessions. And uh, mm. when I first went back, making sure you're as up to date as possible and things with that is, is a challenge. So probably the hardest bit I found about part-time working is actually the clinical more than anything else. And how have you decided that two sessions is the right amount for you? So I think I started with six clinical sessions. And then I think I've sort of slowly dropped from there has that been a push away from the, the clinical or a pull towards leadership opportunities? It's been to do with um, op- other opportunities and then being a mum. So um, I was doing four clinical sessions up until I had Henry. So I dropped from six to four. So that's not so dramatic. Um, and that was because of different clinical leadership opportunities coming up um, and feeling those opportunities really strengthened each other. So Working in the re- regional transforming primary care team, I, I, I um, do a lot and learn a lot about what's happening at region and then being able to sort of, in my CCG role, I'm aware of what's happened at region and then I'm doing it on a more local level. So there's sort of the coherence between the roles has, has felt like it really made sense to do that and therefore worthwhile to sort of drop the clinical sessions. But it works for now. It works because I'm in a really supportive GP surgery with a um we've got twenty thousand patients and a lot of GPs. So there's always someone to ask. We've got a WhatsApp group, we've got various support structures. So I feel that I'm well supported. I'm really conscious of your time, Imogen, and there you are bouncing on your birthing pool, and I'm just feeling a bit bad that you're doing this when your baby's imminently due any day. Can I ask you one last question and then we'll do the final three? I just wanted to ask you about future plans, really, because for the time that I've known you, I've always felt that you're someone that's thinking several steps ahead. It's something I've tried to learn from you. I also like the way that you're very open to learning from any opportunity. So you mentioned the outcome-based healthcare private stuff that you did, the MBA. You're not afraid to go a bit more sideways than other people because you see them as learning opportunities. You take learning from wherever you find yourself. So if we're going to think five years or maybe 10 years ahead, do you have a plan? What I think is it's kind of going back to kind of why I do clinical leadership work. So I always want to have like the biggest effects I can have for patients. And so one thing I think is it's really hard to be specific about roles you might want because the NHS keeps changing its guys the whole time. I'm really excited about integrated care systems. Um, I'd love to have a role 
in, in one of those. Um, my CCG is currently merging with two other CCGs at the moment. So my role will become redundant on my current governing body from March. So I am sort of looking to see what, what else is available um, in our uh, new integrated care system and our new strategic commissioning organisation. So I think it's about looking at where um, your kind of values and passions lie, but where the direction the NHS is going. So I can't give you a specific, I would love this role in X number of years, because I, I think that's quite hard to find. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, sometimes roles appear because of conversations you have that you don't yet know you're going to have. Watch this space and we'll find out. So the final three questions, Imogen. So the first is a book or a resource you'd recommend for leaders? So there's a shortish article called What is Value in Healthcare by Michael Porter that was in the New England Journal of Medicine on the 23rd of December 2010. But if that whets your appetite, there's also the Porter and Tysberg book, Redefining Healthcare. Oh, that is a big book. I remember. It's a big book. But I would say that the articles are really good intro to that kind of subject. And a leader that you really admire and why? So I think this is really difficult because I admire lots of different people for different things they do. But one of the leaders that's stuck with me is actually somebody you've had in one of your podcasts is Samantha Jones, because I once heard her speak at when I was doing my role as a Darcy Fellow at UCL Partners about Operation Onion, where when she started her chief exec roles and um, got people to come in every morning, I think around at eight in the morning and say any problem that they had. So a porter might come saying we need a bariatric wheelchair and she'd borrow one for the day from another hospital till they could buy their own for their trust and just really small things. And then it developed into bigger projects. And it was just a really tangible thing that I thought, you know what, she's amazing. But this is a really simple idea that would really make a difference. And I used to think, oh, if, when I worked in, as a junior doctor in the hospital, um, you know, the printer never worked. And if only I could have just said to someone, I need a new printer, and it would have made my job like literally a billion times more productive and easier. So it kind of made me think you can be really effective by having quite simple ideas that grow. And so that's why I'm picking her. Thank you. I think she'll be really happy to hear that. And your final top three bits of advice for new leaders. So I think um, relationships are totally key. I've learned during COVID in particular that if you build trusting relationships with people, not just in your organisation, but almost more importantly, outside of your organisation, you will achieve so much more. I also think giving yourself time to think and reflect. So one of my things about having a portfolio is I do as I mentioned earlier, every few months, take some time back to really think, what have I achieved? What have I learned? What am I going to take forward? Um, and I think that's really, really important. Um, and I also think diversity of opinion is really important. So as I mentioned, thinking beyond organisational boundaries, talking to lots of different people, you are going to be better with the sum of your parts than just all separately thinking about things. Thank you so much. I'm just sitting there thinking how lucky I am I get to listen to conversations like this. I've always really admired your drive. You're also really honest. So you're not the sort of person to hide why you've done certain things or how you got opportunities. You, you do things and then you turn around and you say, look, guys, this is a really good opportunity. Or you'll say to me, Nish, don't do that. I did that. Wasn't that good? And not many people do that. It's not a zero sum game. You've got that abundance mentality that we're not in competition with each other. So thank you and good luck with baby number two, who is thankfully didn't arrive during this podcast recording. Thank you very much for having me, Nish. And I, yeah, I hope it's useful to other people. So that was my lovely friend and colleague, Imogen Staveley. 
And in case you were wondering, she did give birth to a beautiful baby girl just a few days after we recorded that. I hope you found her story, advice and encouragement as useful as I have over the years. As ever, I'd love to hear what you think. I really appreciate the comments that come through on email or message or Twitter at NextGGP. And if you want to hear more about NextGen, sign up to our monthly bulletin, which is bit.ly forward slash NGGP bulletin. We've got some great webinars coming up with some fantastic speakers and our NextGen programmes are up and running virtually around the country. See you next time for episode 13 of the Next Gen Cast with a very special guest. 